This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. And just a listener note, Caro and Corrie discuss the appointment of the CEO of the Essendon Football Club, who actually stood down just moments after we finished recording. We'll definitely be updating you on that situation next week. Jeff Kennett's gone. I mean, he's going anyway. What about when he said, I do not consider this to be a crisis? A bump in the road. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh about it. I promise you I'm taking no joy from this, but I cannot believe that the president of the football club said, I do not consider this to be a crisis. They didn't speak up. They chose not to. They chose to not play the gender card. They regret it now because it was so disgraceful what happened to Julia Gillard. It was an utter disgrace. Right. Who are you, bagging? One thing we were always told early on was never open a story with a question. Or you could be forgiven for thinking. What if you're already the manliest of men, a celebrated man's man, a man who spent decades brawling and brooding and kicking down the door to the pantheon of cinematic alpha males? All questions already. One question. <laughs> and finally... What if you're Joel Edgerton? I mean, <laughs> no, really, I'm, I've fallen asleep. It wasn't a Come on, thing. in the first sentence, you got to get him in. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. And welcome, everybody, to episode 238 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. It's October, it's beautiful, it's spring, plenty to talk about today. It is... 10 years, Corrie, since the misogyny speech, the famous misogyny speech delivered by Julia Gillard that wasn't really picked up by the Canberra Press Gallery on the day, but is now famous. It wasn't. And look, I I am going to actually, hello everybody, and I'm on a chair that's very small. I'm just going to make it a bit bigger. So if I go flying through the ceiling, Jane's going to help me. We (laughs) said you were eating with the grown-ups. I know. Now I feel like I'm your equal. Hello, everybody. Jane, you gave me a raise. Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin with you. We've got a new book recommendation from Corrie, one that has been eagerly awaited. A wonderful recipe, Corrie. Beautiful flowers from Jane, including little forget-me-nots. And, um, of course, we say thank you and hello to Red Energy, our show sponsor, and, of course, Prince Wine Store. And Caro Miles is coming in, I believe today, which will be a rare sighting of Miles. A bit more um, a bit more of that spring mix doesn't. Don't forget, we're all convening on October 26th. That's a Wednesday at Prince Wine Store in Bank Street, South Melbourne, between five and seven for a glass of wine, a chat and a general buy-up for spring and Christmas. Some good listener discounts, so don't miss out on that. Um, we've got um, a bit of correspondence, Corrie. Mab, M-A-B via email, has just listened to our podcast and completely relates, Corrie, to your HSC uni exam nightmares. She's had several, thankfully not recurring. One involved the train in which she was travelling to the exam, breaking down and all the passengers having to get off and then pushing the train. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) She also um, has tulip fever, or she did. She was in New York in April and there were tulips everywhere. Absolutely beautiful. Anne McDonald, oh, this is a bit concerning, Corrie, and it relates to something I'm going to talk about later, but um, Anne McDonald via email loves a podcast, but a warning on cliviers. And I know people call them cliviers because they're named after Clive of India, but I say cliviers. 
even though I was enamoured with them in recent weeks, he wants me to note that they are toxic for dogs, being from the Lily family. When her Labradoodle puppy during COVID came to her house, he became sick from eating the small red berry-like pods, which are beautiful in themselves, Corrie. And look, there's in a nothing. Bunch. There is nothing nice about Aclivia, and I, I'm sorry, but I, you know, Anne, devastating about your dog getting sick eating the Aclivia berries. But he says, name keep me one them good away. thing about Aclivia. He said, keep them away from Queenie and Panda, and her vet told her to pull them all out. So I'm now, given I've got Aclivias in gardens all around my garden, um, it's a bit of a concern. <laughs> there's no, there's no worries that I met, Panda's going to be near Aclivia. I met a Labrador the other day, Corrie, called Bear. Oh, brought oh back, after brought back nostalgic memories. Great name, great Bear name. Bear was wearing a, um, what are they called around their head when they have surgery? Oh, a cone. Yeah, cone, a cone yeah. head. And um, the owner said to me, don't be sympathetic, it's his own fault, it's the cone of shame. <laughs> What a kind of shame. What, what had Bear been doing? Bear had um, taken another, do- again, memories of Queenie, taken another dog's ball and the dog had bitten its ear and they had to have ear surgery. Oh. <laughs> I know, anyway. I just, it was the name Bear that, um, anyway, made me um, nostalgic for your beautiful Caro, Dorothy. there's so much happening in the footy world. I can't believe that the season's been over two weeks and there's just story after story. And we are recording today, early this week on a Monday, and uh, just as I walked into the studio, ping, 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 my phone starts going off and it's all the news about Andrew Thorburn's appointment as the CEO of Essendon, which follows the ping, ping, ping of Saturday night, Sunday morning about Jeff Kennett's uh, speech at the Hawthorne Best and Fairest. Unfortunate Which speech. followed ping, ping, ping on Friday. Brad Scott's the new coach of Essendon. It just isn't well, Corey, stopping. I did tell you the week before that it, Brad Scott would be coach of Essendon. I knew you'd be gloating about well, that. Good well, <laughs> and Jake Nile actually reported Andrew Thorburn was getting the gig on Friday. And I think, um, look, there is a bit of unease about the appointment because of the Andrew, Andrew Thorburn, of course, is an Essendon man. Essendon brought him in to do the review, the external review. The new chairman, David Barham, asked him to run the external review along with, um, I think it was um, a few uh, a few um, officials from Ernst & Young. And then, like so many people who chair reviews, he's come in and become the CEO. I think Essendon see it as a coup. There are some who have memories of the National Bank scandal who don't see it as, see it as such a coup. Um, it's an interesting appointment. I am always wary when non-footy people take over as chief executives of football clubs because it usually doesn't end well. But he certainly is very well credentialed and everyone deserves a second chance. And he wasn't actually the person, but he was CEO. Or he was very yeah, – well, he was at NAB at the time when that all the unfortunate – um, well, it was just a complete scandal, wasn't it? Shocking. So it took place. Well, it's uh, it, it's an interesting move. I would have thought that if you were trying to stabilise the supporters who have had, um, let's face it, not a not a great year uh, of of of, um, of stability, excitement, and um, a bit of confusion post <laughs> post um, season about who was going to be in their leadership group. I just don't know that this is sending a great message of um, security and comfort. But Andrew is, of course, incredibly highly regarded. Oh, he was, um, certainly before the Royal Commission investigation into NAB. Um, And he has been working diligently uh, 
in the not-for-profit sector as well as the private sector since he left NAB and clearly is all over the Essendon Football Club as a result of this inquiry. So, And, and he must... Um, he must be. He'll probably know where all the bodies are buried. So perhaps the club will be in safe hands with him. Well, it's it's far from over the findings of this review and what's going to happen to the football department. Um, the Brad Scott announcement was almost immediately followed by a Kevin Sheedy rant from the other side of the world. And he what spoke was with that he spoke with Mark Robinson. He wanted his members to know Essendon members to know that he had voted for James Heard, feeding him this club as a cult sometimes. And the cult of Heard, and you know, to think that Kevin Sheedy himself, as my colleague Jake Nile pointed out, he came into the club as a new chum from Richmond and he took years to be accepted by Essendon members and very cleverly built a cohort around him of supporters. And um, to now sit there as a very badly performed board member this year, I mean, really, he's, he's done a couple of pretty ordinary things. Uh, what what the statement said to me, Caro, was, was, was that as a board member, he was more loyal to James Hurd than he was to the Essendon Football Club. Because even if it's not a unanimous vote... And that's okay. Boards have to come out, they have to open the door and walk out and face their supporters, face their sponsors and face the media and their players and the organisation and say, we are as one and we are, we are over the moon. We are overjoyed that we have a new coach. Well, it's obvious, you know, it? He's got to go. I mean... And it's just, it's so... It's, his, well, he's his, got his to go. His comments became the story on a day that should have been... David Barham in his media conference said this is one of the great days for our club. Well... They, they could have projected, particularly Brad Scott could have projected a little better on that regard. But anyway, it was a bit flat, I felt, the delivery. Oh, but, did you? But well, Brad Scott's why, press conference. Yes, but why would oh, Kevin okay. Sheedy come out and rain, out, rain on that parade? Oh, I just thought he was wooden. I thought he was wooden. Where was the excitement? Where was the passion? He talked about KPIs and deliverables and, and you know, the obje- the core objective is to is to win a premiership. The core objective is to actually bring the whole community together after years of coaching changes and, dare I say, the spectre of the the Essendon drug scandal probably still hovers over I some components of that. I don't think he needed to talk about that. No, I'm not saying he needed to talk about it, Carol, but he needed to be upbeat. Like this is, he said, this is one of the great days in our hist- in our club's history, and yet David Barham said David that. Barham said that, and then Brad Scott comes along speaking earnestly and and. Um, where was the passion? Where was the joy? Oh, I thought, Wouldn't you be jumping out of your skin? Well, no, look, I, I, I disagree. I think that's Oh, there was that's hardly a, way, a smile. That's the way he rolls. Oh, look, I think, it, you know, I think he treated the whole situation with respect. All clubs exist to win premierships. I don't care about all that other stuff. When you bring everything, everyone together, that's how you win premierships. But he kept talking about the AFL job. He's now with Essendon. Well, he Talk was asked about, the about future. it. He yeah, was I, asked, know, I understand he was asked And he about said it. it's made him a more even and wise, well, oh, you know, along well, those words. Well, I hope he relaxes. I hope he relaxes and I hope he finds his, his inner bomber. Oh gee, I, I think I think you're being a bit unfair on Brad. No, I, I, I was I was watching it in Lifetime, which is not something I normally do. It popped up. Yeah, I was I reading it. the Age I at the time, it. and they said, and suddenly over I went. Well, I just well, I don't often watch those things, you see, and you do, and maybe all of the media conferences when they announce a new coach are kind of like that. It's business. This is what it is. It's. A, I, I was just sort of jumping out of my skin with joy, going, "Yay! Bombers have finally got you know they've got a good coach, and this is great and everything." I was more excited than Brad Scott, it seemed. 
Yeah, I, I, I disagree. That's the way. He, if he'd been different and not true to himself, he's very authentic, Brad, as is his brother. And I think that what he he's going to need all the strength and all the seniority and all the leadership skills that he's learned over, you know, premiership years at Brisbane, working under Lee Matthews, um, yeah. working as an assistant coach. He, he um, under Mick Malthouse, I should say, and then, of course, North Melbourne for 10 years, where most people would agree he overperformed, overdelivered with the list he had. Um, it's going to be a big job to bring all those factions together and get rid of all those wealthy, over-empowered, entitled supporters. So... When you say that, do you mean the supporter groups are the yeah, problem? Yeah, oh, shocking problem. Plus the football department's not united. There'll be changes there. And given that all the board members who wanted to keep Ben Rutten quit and did the right thing, Kevin Sheedy now has to quit too. And this ridiculous idea that James Heard should have got the job when he hasn't worked in footy for five years. I mean, James Heard deserves a second chance, but the arrogance in thinking he can walk back into a job after five years not working in the game is just, just crazy to me. I mean, that's not – it's the cult of Heard and the cult of the Messiah that, that this club has got to get rid of. And maybe um, – I thought Brad was pretty measured. Anyway, we agree to disagree. And, and what about Jeff Kennett's speech at the Best and Fairest? I think the bump in the road line was a pretty unfortunate choice of words. And had what, Eddie what Maguire about... said that, he would have been gone. And Jeff Kennett's gone. I mean, he's going he's anyway. Going. What, but... about, what about when he said, I do not consider this to be a crisis? A bump <laughs> in the road. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> I don't mean to laugh about it. I, I promise you I'm taking no joy from this because I am a Hawthorne supporter and what's happened in the last couple of weeks, the allegations against Indigenous families and players has horrified me, has horrified me. But I cannot believe that the president of the football club said, I do not consider this to be a crisis well, look, the club. What would is, a crisis look like to Jeff Kennett? No, I know. The, the club is distancing itself from... The, the crisis, I mean, because they're, they're taking great um, store by the fact that most of the people named in these allegations, and they are still allegations. And also there's a WorkSafe Victoria inquiry about to begin, so yeah. I would imagine people have to be pretty careful with what they say. Yeah, this, this is the same mob who cleared Essendon during the drug scandal, and the South Australian version went in and cleared Adelaide after the camp. So I don't have huge confidence in WorkSafe Australia uncovering stuff that happened back in 20, you know, 12, 10, 11, 13, 14, 15. Anyway, but I think that, you know, it's a, it's certainly a mess. There's still no parameters for an investigation into what actually happened. The Indigenous families involved won't cooperate still with an AFL-led investigation. It's going to have to be independent. Is it going to be work safe? Is that all it's going to be? I doubt it. And I, I look, Jeff Kennett made the point that I don't think he should have criticised those families for talking to the media, given the... You know, there's so much pain and so much sadness and so much separation over so many years. Mm. You know, someone has a crack back the other way. I'll give them some leeway. But careers could be ruined by this and brands irrevocably damaged, such as Alistair Clarkson's, and he hasn't had a chance to speak for himself. He does deny what is alleged took place. He says he has another version of all these stories. So, um, But I think, you know, Jeff's line about a bump in the road was just, look, it's time to go. Time, time to, go. to go. Thank it's, you. Um, time to go. It, not only is it a crisis, it remains a, a real mess. There's so much sadness and so much unknown yet about how it's going to be resolved, Corrie. And two coaches out of work, North Melbourne, the number one draft 
Olympic has now announced over the weekend that he wants out. And I wonder if Alistair Clarkson was definitely going to be the coach, whether he would have said he wants, wants out after one year at the club. They are in crisis. They are in crisis. And through really no fault of their own, the poor things. There's lots happening on the on the footy agenda and no doubt next week we'll have more to talk about. But I am interested in the fact that, as you know, that it is um, 10 years since Julia Gillard... Tony I will Abbott, not be lecturing about misogyny by this man. 9th of October 2012, Federal Parliament and the pressure had been mounting all year for the government to sack Liberal MP, funnily enough, but the Speaker of the House, Peter Slipper, who had sent hundreds of really inappropriate texts, many of them sexual, to um, his then advisor, James Ashby. That was a massive story when you remember it. And Tony Abbott had been um, having a crack uh, in, in the House. It was a full sitting day and he was opposition leader, as I said, and he said, this Speaker's standards are this Prime Minister's standards and said that Gillard led a government that should already have died of shame. And Gillard said later that she was sitting there making notes as he made this he was having these jab jab jabs across the table and she'd had enough caro she had enough it was just the latest in a long line of sexist behavior and she had enough and that's when she stood up and said I was, she was not going to be accused of sexism by this man thank you very much deputy speaker and i rise to oppose the motion moved by the leader of the opposition and in so doing, I say to the Leader of the Opposition, I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. The and the, the press gallery sort of missed the story because... Well, I don't really know why they missed it. I think they just couldn't really see the wood for the trees. No, but it became they were a, deeply immersed in the Peter Slipper issue. Yep, and it became a massive international story. And, of course, we've, we've both seen that wonderful documentary about Julia Gillard's treatment at the time and the regret not only from her but from Penny Wong and so many senior ministers and senior women from both sides, really, that they didn't speak up. They chose not to. They chose to not play the gender card. They regret it now because they it was so disgraceful what happened to Julia Gillard, questions about her partner, his sexuality. I mean, when you look back, it was an utter disgrace. And Tony Abbott, she felt, was one of the worst offenders. And women around the world are using that line and have used that line and have stood up as a result. I mean, it was so inspiring. Mm. But it is interesting revisiting it, and there was an interesting article in The Age over the weekend. Um, it was also the day that the Gillard government um, quietly passed into law that afternoon that um, single parents were taken off the single parents' payment and put onto the New Smart, I think it was called. Yeah, New Which Smart payment. Some of them were receiving 100 or $200 less a $110 week. $110 mm. a week they were worse off. It had ended the grandfathering arrangement, grandparenting arrangement put into place by John Howard in 2006. Now, Julia Gillard still stands by this decision. Um, I think the Gillard government's decision to end that grandfathering arrangement, it was defended as a budget cut necessary, saved $728 million over four years. Um, and Howard and Gillard together, I think, um, saved taxpayers billion, $5 billion. And she said it was a fairness measure. But um, most of her senior ministers now, including Anthony Albanese, have great regret about that and said that it pushed a lot of women under the poverty line. So just interesting that... It is interesting. Yes, sometimes we're not practising what we preach. 
Well, and and not that this is a gender issue. Well, I suppose it's it's a sexuality issue. But you know, I was always disappointed that she didn't stand up for um, gay marriage, and I, I thought that was a, a failure of her government not to do that. Of course, it, it's happened now, and it's it's wonderful that it has happened. But it took far too long, and you know, I, I think he was up against it. I just think he was paranoid about sometimes standing up to um, all the, the so-called faceless operators who were working around her. But I, I do did think it was interesting that that one key change was something. And there was obviously, there was some other wonderful advances he made in mental health and disability, but that was just one disappointing move that although she still defends and defended quite strongly on Q&A a couple of years ago, a lot of her senior ministers, including the current prime minister, have great regret about that decision. So it's just an interesting um, balancing there, act. There is a new book, Caro, coming out because of the 10th anniversary. It's called Not Now, Not Ever, 10 Years On From the Misogyny Speech. It's edited by Julia Gillard. All proceeds are going to charity. It will be in bookshops this week, Caro, and what Julia Gillard has done has collected a series of essays from uh, eminent women around the world, including the British historian Mary Beard, Jess Hill, the Australian writer who who won the Stella Prize a couple of years ago for her uh, book on domestic violence, Jen Palmieri, who used to be the Director of Communications at the White House in the Obama administration, Catherine Murphy, political editor of The Guardian, and a whole lot more. And they're just talking about, uh, oh, um, you know, um, Cathy Lett, for example. Uh, I mean, she's always bobbing up everywhere, isn't she, Cathy Lett? She does have but, a nice turn of phrase. But she does have a good turn of phrase. And, um, oh, here we are. All proceeds from the book will go to the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. So there you go. So look out for a hot pink book titled Not Now, Not Ever, edited by Julia Gillard. Uh, it is interesting how that happened with um, the way it was covered at the time. And I, I think it does happen, at, and I think it happens in footy too, that people outside the industry see something in a jumping up and down and going nuts about it, and then you work inside it, and sometimes you just... You're too involved and you're too inside, as I said, to see the wood for the trees. And it has happened to me where people have gone, what about, you know, when this happened, you go, oh, yeah, but he does that all the time and that's this and that's that. But no. That's true. No, you're absolutely right. There were so many members of the the Canberra Press Gallery who missed it. There were also newspaper editors who missed it. Even me, Joe Public, I kind of missed it. I thought it was a, a pretty firm and convincing performance and I was shocked and I watched it. What really swayed it for me was um, being on the socials and suddenly it just took off through Page YouTube. Page one of the New York Times the next day. The New York, well, I think probably. The Herald and, Sun and the Age Buried and Isn't this a shocking cultural cringe? But a week or two later, the New Yorker had an outstanding um, article about it. And I thought, gosh, this actually was a momentous moment. You're right, just didn't see it happening, did not see it happening. The rest of the world did. I didn't. I want, well, partly, Corrie, because the people who were bringing you Canberra via um, TV, radio and newspapers didn't see it as that big a deal either. I mean, not everybody. And it was certainly run on the news that night. I think that um, I just would love to know whether things might have been different had they stood up to the heckling and the bullying. Well, Penny Wong said that in that, in that, in that uh, the ABC series you mentioned earlier. No, I, I mentioned the documentary about Julia Gillard, which was unbelievable. Oh, oh okay. What was the one I'm thinking of with, with Annabelle Crabb? You're Crab. thinking of the Annabelle Crabb, yeah, yeah, which yeah. was absolutely that brilliant was as well. terrific.
the Julia Gillard one, the, it ends with kids around the world, young women around the world of every different colour, every different race, basically repeating the line and something that they had used as a bit of a mantra to empower themselves. So sort of nice to know that even if at the time it wasn't really recognised, it certainly has been internationally. Missed us. <laughs> It's, it's just terrible. Anyway, it hasn't missed me now. I'm all over the 10th anniversary. wonder when we will next have a woman prime minister. Though, oh, right? and it was, well, misrepresented was that, um, thanks, Miss Jane, was the Annabelle Krebs show still well worth watching on iView. And, um, oh, woman prime minister, well, wouldn't that just be a very fine thing? There are, are actually a couple on one side of the house who I think are, are, um, have the potential well, speaking of politics, I suppose, and men behaving badly, were you across the Tim Smith tweets over the weekend? The Not really. Disgraced former state um, I know minister. He, I know he tweets regularly. What did he say yeah, this oh, he, um I think they've mostly been deleted now, unfortunately. And I'm not on Twitter, but um, they were getting a lot of traction over the weekend. He had a crack at Neil Mitchell. It was the most vile attack. I mean, he'd done an interview with Neil Mitchell and... Um, and I thought, you know, and bared his soul after that drink driving incident. He's leaving Parliament, isn't he? Yep. Yeah. But he put out, he basically said he hated Neil Mitchell and he was a duplicitous, dreadful person, um, suggested something, um, said something about one of Neil's children working for Matthew Guy, which I think is what he might do or she might do on a contracted basis. It was absolutely disgusting. And you think, how are these people, how was he ever a senior member of the coalition, the state coalition. It just seems absolutely crazy. The Julia Gillard documentary, by the way, and I highly recommend it, is called um, Strong Female Lead. Now we will move to the cocktail cabinet because Miles Thompson has visited. And, Miles, it's lovely to see you. Um, Miles, of course, is from the Prince Wine Store, a wonderful sponsor of this program. And don't forget to save the date for our event at the Prince Wine Store on October the 26th. Oh, Island nice. produce generally. Uh, is that Tasmania or are we going further afield? Well, we've got an island wine tasting on the weekend and we did discuss what got included. Obviously, you can include Australia, but... Well, everything's an island. We really said, we're point. going internationally. Well, yeah, so, so we, yeah, we, we didn't include Tasmania because we do Tasmania all the time anyway. We were going to do Kangaroo Island, but we couldn't find anything. Tropical island? Anything. Any tropical island? Didn't do New Zealand. Uh, yeah, so we've done... So it's a lot of it's Italy, so Sardinia and uh, Sicily. But we've got some awesome stuff from the Canary Islands, Tenerife. The Canary Islands? Yeah, Madeira. Wow. Um, some really awesome Madeira, some Marsala too, which is I think it's Sicily as well. But um, rum yeah, from the Caribbean, rum from um, any, yeah, rum from the Caribbean, any rum Santorini from Jamaica. Wines? We've got some Greek wines they too. Are great. Santorini. Have you ever oh, had, had wine from Santorini, Caro? Not sure. Never been to Santorini, so oh, maybe not. You? Me neither. No. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I, it's one for me. I have been to Santorini, and we decided to just after the first night and having a glass of wine and going, "How good is this?" We did not deviate from the script. We had each night for about five nights yeah. just Santorini wines, and every wine. So Acerdico is the main variety that you see the there. Names, it's the white. But they were great. It's so it's and I mean it's one of those things. You know, you drink the local wines, and they're perfect for the. For the weather and the food, that's true. So we did have a nice is, few which at is the time. Great, which is I think which is nice often about drinking and eating in Europe. You know, we're very international with what we do here, but it's nice when you're in Europe because wherever you are, often staying inside uh, your footprint. Yeah, I always say to people too, they're like, "Oh, what's the best wine from 
you know, to match with whatever food. It's like, well, where's your food from? Yeah. You've got somewhere that makes wine there, you know. So tell us, give us a wine recommendation and tell us the island. So I've got two. So this is, Sicily is the first one, but it's Mount Etna specifically. So oh, I'm brilliant. There. Uh, Tenuta Aglaia Bianco. So it's a white blend, Caracante, um, Inzalia, uh, and a couple of other native white varietals. We sort of talk about it being like the Chablis of the South. It's got this really sort of like mineral driven and, and those volcanic soils really sort of put this mineral sort of element into the wines. Did you see, Carol, my eyes light up when like, you said Ooh. the word Chablis? <laughs> well, well uh, my eyes like are lighting Chablis. up at the fact that they um, you can grow grapes near Mount Etna. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's yeah. amazing. And the vineyards there are, are sort of, they're sort of set out like there's vineyard, you know, areas and single vineyards and things and the, and, and the sort of regionality around Etna is based around the lava flows. So the different lava flows are the different sort of areas where they source. Yeah, it's really interesting. The wonderful I've never so- been. I'm really keen to soil. go. Yeah, so that, and that real mineral-rich soil, that's what it has, and it really sort of imparts the wines. The reds are incredible as well, and the whites have this lovely mineral edge and this nice kind of like sometimes this like orange blossom and sort of peach sort of thing going on with them. It's They're really fancy, very crispy and crunchy, but have this lovely kind of like sweet wine descriptions. Are so <laughs> yeah, we just want to They're go so and eat, eat them. <laughs> They're um, so evocative. Miles, you have, have you been to Sicily? Never. So there's this drive. I have a friend there at the you, moment. You, you drive from Catania Airport along, like if you're going to Tarmina that way, and so Etna is on your left, and there's something a little bit disconcerting about the fact that oh, it's a live volcano. <laughs> Could it's the taxi crazy. driver please drive a little quicker? Just as I, I think past. it's yeah. I mean, they have to evacuate off. But it's like, populated. All it's all populated. Hundred yeah, percent. Getting back to the wine. Yeah. Tanita. Tanuta Aglia. Tanuta Aglia. And yep. this is a white, white wine. It's a blend, very Chablis-like, if you like those kind of minerally crunchy whites, that kind of like white tree fruit, and it's got this lovely kind of citrus blossom thing. You know, you think Sicily, I guess you think like lemon and citrus as well. How so much? it's definitely got those elements. So $49. Okay. Um, and you get a discount, of And you'll course. get the discount on those 10%, but these will also be going on discount for the weekend too. So they'll be 15% off. This weekend? Yeah, this weekend. So better oh, okay. not to say you're a messenger. So just, just wait till they go on discount. Wait for you'll the You'll get them for 15% off, but anything else you'll get 10% off when you put the code. That sounds so fabulous. Tanuta Aglia. Tanuta Aglia. So A-G-L-A-E-A. Aglia. So Anne-Louise Mickelson, she's Swedish, I think, moved over there and with her partner and then they broke up and she sort of did her own thing, but she's a bit of a talent, so she does make vermouth and I just was looking her up on the way here, apparently she's got her own skincare range. So she kept she kept well, the, she like, kept the she's winery. Amazing. She's a really cool, but she, she kept definitely kept parts parts of some of the vineyards. Yeah, but that didn't get ugly like Brad and Angelina Happens with Miraval. That was I was reading oh, about yeah. that the other day. Not not pretty. Anyway, what's your next mm. one? And so the other one is um, Pala, and mm-hmm. they're from Sardinia, and it's Cananao is the grape, which is essentially Grenache, um, but it's n- sort of it's not that that really lilting sort of lifted sort of thing that you see here. In, in often in Australia, that's sort of sweet red fruit. It's got a little bit more kind of earthy herb thing going on, a little bit more like the, the Grenache you see out of um, Chardonnay de Pape, 
not quite that intense, but obviously quite warm. Sardinia, you know, it's right in the ocean there. You know, You've been to Sardinia, Cas, haven't you? No, I've been to Corsica. Oh, Corsica. Corsica. Yeah. So just down, yeah. yeah Very close. Below Very Corsica, close. south of Corsica. Yes, Sardinia is sort yeah. of more, more Italian. Yeah, it is Italian. The other's French. Well, no, they <laughs> that, that are, but they are. Corsica yes, is Corsica French. Is but, France. Yeah. Yes, but when you go and there, there's an Italian <laughs> part of Corsica and there's a, it's quite interesting. Ah, uh, okay, sure. They don't all sort of agree yeah. on a lot of oh, things. Oh, I can oh, I'm imagine. Sh- I'm sure it's true. And it's got a little bit more of a rustic sort of charm to it, I guess I put on it. But really cool if you've never had them. So it is essentially Grenache, but obviously these varieties sort of adapt to their it's local It's called Cannonal. Is that the name? Cannonal. Cannonal. And C-A-N-O-N-A-U, I think Cannonal. And what's the name of the wine again? So Parla. Parla. And how much is that? P-A-L-A. And that's $29. Great. Really, really cool. But yeah, look, have a look. The offer will go up on the website too, and it's worth checking out. Like I said, Scottish gin, the Linden Lime Gin, which I think I've talked about before. But yeah, Jamaican rum, some Madeira, Marsala, some really good Marsala. And I don't know I'm if people think of like cooking Marsala, this is like dessert wine, sweet drinking Beautiful. Marsala. Yeah, fantastic. I just can't, I can't get over Canary Islands has its own wine. Look up Canary Islands in, in Tenerife, but look up Canary Islands vineyards. And they have these incredible, and they do this also in, in Greece as well. They have these bush vines that they sort of trellis in a circle yeah, that are in these little sort of ditches. It's fascinating. Wow. Really cool tasting. It's kind of good to talk about it because I think it's... And you're doing it all weekend? So all, so Saturday, 12 till 2 p.m., $10 for a ticket, and there's about 30 wines or something. Oh, that's great value. Gin, Have a little tasting. rum, yeah. Miles, it sounds fantastic. Oh, really Island cool. wines. Well, that was a cocktail cabinet, a very interesting cocktail cabinet brought to us by Prince Wine Store. Lovely to see you, Miles. Oh, glad to be here. All right, Corrie, we'll move straight on for Red Energy to B, S and F. And you have a book that I'm very much looking forward to hearing about. I know. You were a bit shocked when I bought this the other day. Well, because you already had a copy. I <laughs> left it in Ballarat and I was um, I was so hot to read the rest of it. I went into a bookshop with Caro and, um, and bought another copy. But isn't it beautiful? Jane was... Jane was commenting. In fact, it looks beautiful with your flowers. This is Maggie O'Farrell's The Marriage Portrait, Caro, and listeners to the podcast will know that you and I are huge fans of Maggie O'Farrell, and we had particular delight in introducing to to readers um, Hamnet two years ago, which won the Women's Prize for Fiction, and Maggie is back in fine historical form telling us the story of uh, Lucrezia Medici, who married... Uh, a Duke of Ferrara at the age of 13. She went to live with him at 15 because he went off to war and she went to the court of Ferrara and lived there for one year before she died. And there's always been a bit of a question mark about did she die of natural causes or was she murdered? Maggie O'Farrell has taken inspiration from not only the one and only portrait of Lucrezia that exists in the world but also the very famous Robert Brown. Browning poem, the Larch, My Last Duchess. And her interpretation of that is that um, Alfonso, her husband, who then went on to marry two other women after her, was responsible for her death. She, Maggie has built a whole fictional account of what happens in this book and feels that, well, there are a couple of giveaways which I won't say, but one of them is um, to do with the Robert Browning poem, My Last Duchess. Um, does that infer that the next one and the next one, what is that? It, it's kind of like a creepy way. Rather than saying my first wife, it's just a little odd. So Maggie looked at the portrait of this um, Renaissance, this beauty, um, 
the fifth child of, I think, eight children in the um, the Cosimo uh, Medici family of Florence, very famous, very wealthy, and um, decided that there was a story in this. So this is a very different beat to Hamnet in so many ways, but her touch with historical fiction is gentle and probing and um, really had me at the very, very beginning. Some people have compared it to Hamnet. I know Anna from the op shop was having a bit of trouble with it at the beginning. And I just, all my, all I could say in advice is just put Hamnet and your thoughts and expectations to one side and just read this as a beautiful novel. And it really is a beautiful novel. Lucrezia, young, but um, so worldly and wisely in her own mind, she was in Maggie's story, she she creates her as a brilliant artist. So there's a lot of. Do you remember um, the Dominic Smith book, um, the last painting of Sarah DeVos a yes. few years ago? And we loved the painterly uh, descriptions and how um, those artists of the Dutch Golden Age prepared their canvases and their paints. This is a very similar thing. And of course, with Renaissance painters. There wasn't just one of them. They had a studio of young artisans who would come along and do one aspect of the painting. For example, in this case, when uh, Alfonso decides he wants a portrait of his beautiful new bride, uh, two craftspeople arrive. Um, they're, they're apprentices to the to the main painter who does the portrait. One is just he just paints fabrics. That's all he does, and the other one paints like the external out the window the kind of whatever is going to be outside the painting. So it's an external garden view, which actually isn't in this particular portrait, but it's just so interesting the way that all that carries on. But at its heart, this is a mystery because you don't really know whether uh, Alfonso is going to murder um, his new bride or whether, in fact, she dies of natural causes. So you're kind of living this in real time with Lucrezia, who suspects very early on in their marriage that her husband has become bored with her and wants to get rid of her. So we're going along as she is going along, and almost to the point where every time there's a knock on the door, you jump like she jumps. So the tension is fabulous. The characters are wonderful. The politics of the Florentine and Ferrara courts is amazing. Great rivalry between the two areas. And... um, and, and just um, a love story that goes horribly, horribly wrong and we find out why. And and the power, the pa- you know, driven by power. And these themes, Cara, you know, it's historic fiction, but these themes are universal and they're contemporary. Uh, women being considered as chattels, domestic violence, um, power and what people do with it when they abuse it. It's so interesting. So that is The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. Highly, highly recommend. I think everybody will love it. But Women you, are the sacrificial lambs. And she, she wasn't meant yes. to be the wife, was she? Her sister she wasn't. was. No, she wasn't. But in um, Maggie O'Farrell's done her research, when, um, when for, the, for the dowry, her Medici father paid Alfonso's family Fifty million, the equivalent of fifty million pounds sterling. So that <laughs> a good bride will get that. Um, so that's that one. Now you have been watching the little screen. No, you went to the pictures. I went to the movies you went on to Saturday. The movies. That's on right. my you own. Did tell me that because it was my first Saturday without footy, and I thought, well, I'm not going to the MCG or Marvel Stadium or the Three AW Studio, so I'll go and see a film. This film has come upon me. I didn't know anything about it. It um, has only just been released. It is called See How They Run, 
and it is set in London in the 1950s and it is set around the set of the stage play of Agatha Christie's famous and still running The Mousetrap. It re- oh, is this when it debuts at the West End? Well, no, it, um, it, the film is set at the celebration of Mousetrap's 100th appearance oh, okay. and they have a... and. It, they have this wonderful reception. I think it's at, at the Savoy. A lot of it's set in the Savoy, but at, at a big hotel. And there was a murder back in the theatre. It's a bit reminiscent of a book I've just read, the new Anthony Horowitz, The Twist of a Knife, in the idea that a lot of the characters are real. That is also about a murder after a stage play, except in that case the critic, a nasty theatre critic who writes an acerbic review is murdered. And Anthony Horowitz, the author, is in fact suspected of... Anyway, that's another story. Sorry, can I just jump in? Do you remember Vincent Price was in that movie where he was his performance in Shakespeare was ridiculed and he killed one by one systematically the critics, including Robert Morley? That's right. And he killed right. Theatre of Blood. Oh, what a great movie was that. I forgot about that? that. I forgot about that. And do you remember that. they cooked um so they cooked Robert Morley's the critics <laughs> poodles and put them in a pie and then stuffed his face full with it put a yes, drain yes. down his throat and it's stuffed a famous in his... scene. Oh. Oh, I remember the death scene when he uh, Anyway, see how they run. Now interestingly um Mousetrap is based on a, a radio play by Agatha Christie called Three Blind Mice, hence the name of the film, See How They Run. It's a spoof. It's a whodunit. It's Think London, West End, 1952. Um, the, the main characters are a pair of very unusual cops from Scotland Yard. My absolute favourite, uh, Saoirse Ronan, plays... Saoirse. Saoirse Ronan, I always get it wrong, sorry. She plays a very young constable and Sam Rockwell, sporting a brilliant accent, plays um, the inspector who was also an alcoholic with a very tragic backstory. But they are bumbling to say the least, but very, very lovable. The victim, it's interesting, um, a, a blacklisted Hollywood director has come to London to turn Mousetrap into a play, but... And this is true that when Mousetrap was released on the West End, in the contract was they couldn't make a film out of it until the play ended its run. So, oh, really? And it's still running. It closed. <laughs> it closed, I think, briefly because of COVID. But I now, didn't know that. I know. It, look, it's a fascinating story. Richard Attenborough, who actually was the star of the original Mousetrap, is a character in the film, and and as is his wife Sylvia Sim, who is hoping to get the role ahead of Grace Kelly in the film. Um, the, whole, the blacklisted Hollywood director, Leo Kopernik, is played by Adrian Brody. Um, he narrates the film, even though he is a victim, and that happens very early on. He won an Academy Award years ago, didn't yeah, he? For, for the, the piano player or yeah, the... Pianist? Pianist. pianist. Yeah. Anyway, he is a bad egg, of all, even though he's a blacklisted Hollywood director. He's come to London. He is a bad egg, and not everyone wants him dead, so you can't work out exactly why he's died. Agatha Christie herself turns up in the film at one point, and, well, I didn't pick it. And it, look, it, Oh, it, great. Okay, no more. It's a spoof. <laughs> it's great fun. There's a lot of nuances about the play and about, you know, life imitating art. If you've seen Mousetrap, apparently, there are so many little, you know, funny things that happen that allude to the play, which is apparently coming to Melbourne 
in the next year. I gather so. I never saw it. Did you see it? No, I've never seen it. When you were in London? I mean, it it was sort of a bit passe when I lived in London in the 80s. But you would have been very happy in your happy place, 1950s England. Oh, (laughs) and and it's filmed around, yeah, I was, and it's, and you know, I was at my favourite cinema and they brought me my mandatory hot chocolate and I was very happy. It's set around, the murder happens around the time of the Rillington Place murders, which is sort of another funny little thing because Richard Attenborough, I think, ended up playing... Um, the lead in that film, 10 Rillington Place. But this is why this couple of sort of slightly bumbling, the inspector and his very young um, constable who is meant to be mentoring, even though he's a hopeless mentor, um, they're they're put on the case because everyone else is on the Rillington Place one. So, look, honestly, it is really, really good. It's called See How They Run. David Stratton gave it four stars. Oh, good on you, David. Good enough for me. And I would say that it's a very good film. Um, And I spoke to my friend Mary this morning and she also saw it on the weekend and she also enjoyed it. I would want to um, put in a request before the end of the year. Could we please have David Stratton on our podcast? I would love that. Well, easier said than done. I mean, one of us us will have to organise it. But yes, we'll give it a go. All right. Now, or if Corrie, anybody knows him, can they just send us his email, please? I've also been cooking, and uh, my brother gave me this recipe. He's raved about it many times. It's a very simple fish curry, and it's beautiful, and we absolutely loved it. It's from Rick Stein's India, In Search of the Perfect Curry, from his, um, remember the Indian Odyssey, oh, that wonderful TV series. It is an absolutely, it's an absolute winner. Um, the main ingredients are snapper tomato and tamarind. In the recipe, which you'll see on our show notes, um, it asks you to put in 100 mils of tamarind liquid. Now, I just had tamarind paste in the fridge, which I mixed in with some hot water. My brother said, no, 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 no. You have to buy the proper tamarind pulp, soak it in water, drain it. and you- Muri powder, presumably the chilli leaves up in the Kashmir district are a different, more flavoursome than... I guess so, but I just, <laughs> I mean, I didn't have it. Easy so- to find? Mm. Or not? If it will be, if you go to any Asian food store, I go to the one at the Paran Market. Oh, so they're quite common. And they have everything, apparently. But I just decided to do this on spec, and my only visit was to the fish shop. Snapper works really well in this. You serve it with basmati rice. I did it also with papadums. It's also got two green green chilies, which you add with the seeds. And this is a recipe that serves about four people. Corrie, it is absolutely delicious. Sounds gorgeous. A really colour. Well, it's sort of yellowy, beautiful, yellowy and tomatoy. I mean, reddy, orangey, sort of. In fact, there's a picture. <laughs> yellowy, orangey, tomatoy. Yeah, yeah. It's um very, very tasty, Jane. And I've just learned that Kashmiri chili is actually a mild chili, and if you need to substitute, you can add a bit of paprika and things like that. Oh, mm. that's interesting because I only had a mild chili powder, so I guess Perfect. I did the right thing. You did. If you put something in that was a bit more flavoursome and hotter, it would have not worked. Oh, well, that's very interesting. Ricky Thank Stein's you. Madras Fish Curry of Snapper, Tomato and Tamarind. Very easy. Most of the ingredients you'll have, maybe not the tamarind pulp, but, you know, my daughter Clem's moved home for a little while and all that stuff's appeared back in my fridge. So mm. I'm very excited. How's the mess in the bedroom, laundry? I haven't even looked in the bedroom. Living room. I haven't looked in the bedroom. Living, no, living room's pretty good and there are a lot of new cooking utensils that I didn't have. That was BSF for Red Energy. And remember, our local energy retailer, Red Energy, can be called, can be contacted on 131806. If you're moving house, they're the people to ring. Corrie, you are grumpy. I am grumpy. Well, I'm grumpy and I'm sympathetic. 
Melbourne is open for business, as we know, but the cafes close at 3pm. And it's ones? really, really annoying. Most of them. Most cafes now close at 3pm. Now, I can understand the pressures of small business. I can understand that most cafe owners are there at 6am or 6.30, possibly even earlier. And it is a long day from 6 to 3pm to when they close the door. And then, of course, they have to till up and they have to clean down all the counters and do all the stuff that they have to do. But since COVID-19 and all the lockdowns in Melbourne our city and well probably even the world is suffering a huge labor shortage in 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 the hospitality industry. I don't industry. mean to be rude, but why would you be I offered to buy you a coffee for this podcast which we're recording you don't in have the to afternoon. Drink coffee, Caro, at a, to go know, to a cafe. Exactly. What you might want tea or a well, hot well, chocolate. Well, well as you know, I live now at the beach and when I come to Melbourne I have inter- interviews, I have catch-ups with people, I have catch-ups with friends, and I generally, because I don't have a home in which to do it or an office, we tend to go to cafes. Go to a bar. Not at three, not at three o'clock, not at three o'clock. So you rock up somewhere and they say, we're closing in 10 minutes. And it just has happened so frequently in this new phase of living. Now, I'm sure things will, and staff shortages will, will ease. And also before every small business owner rings me up and has a crack at me for not being sympathetic, I did used to own a shop myself. I do understand rising operational costs are killers and I do understand staff shortages. But I'm just finding it so inconvenient and so annoying. And I'd just like to send a shout out to husband in South Yarra because he closes at four. 30 and bless your heart because that is now my go-to for a three or four o'clock Curio Donovan if you're listening. <laughs> Actually it's funny I would say that a lot of cafes closed at that time anyway. Not not in the past. I reckon that my local no, one, not my in the old past. local and in Carol, Melbourne you know how did. Well you know how I know this though I mean I only know this from my local thing because when I had the bookshop as you know I would often be meeting publishers reps and so on in the afternoon and I would have a sell in at say two o'clock and then maybe one at four and there was always a cafe in that busy strip that was open not anymore. I went down there the other day to find a place, no meeting, but I just actually wanted a cup of tea and do some emails and things. And they were all closing. Like it's just, it's anyway, that's just my, but I said grumpy with sympathy, grumpy with sympathy. No, no, no. I get it. I can imagine that would be very frustrating. Um, and that's what you're grumpy about. Last week I was grumpy about possums, even more grumpy this week when I realised that not only had they te- attacked my avocado tree, but Oh, no. <laughs> Some of the wisteria. Most oh, of it's okay. No. Oh, it's furious. You need our possum man. Furious. No, I've got the dog here. Don't worry. That's another story. Corrie, six quick questions for Red Energy now. What federal appointment pleased you this week? Last week, well, it pleased me last week, Caro, last Thursday, Attorney General Mark Dreyfus announced the appointment of a federal court judge as the 56th Justice of the High Court, and it was a woman, Jane Jago, and she is now the seventh woman appointed to the High Court. And do you know what? We have more women than men now on our High Court. It's happy to, days. Something to be happy about. There you go. What newspaper story this week broke a cardinal rule of journalism for you? Well, and I'm not bagging the story or the journalist. <laughs> right. But I read this and read <laughs> Who this. Who are you bagging? Remember when we were, I mean, I can't, we both, we started at different newspapers. You were at The Age, I was at The Herald. But one thing we were always told early on was never open a story with a question. Mm. And um, so. Or, or you could be forgiven for thinking 
Yeah, well, there's a lot of things you're not meant to do, and too many exclamation marks is another one. You could be forgiven for thinking Caroline Wilson is on a roll. Yes, and Jeff Slattery banned a lot of words like demise and arguably. Anyway, this is a feature um, run in The Australian over the weekend about Joel Edgerton. Can I just read you the intro? Who's the journo? Megan Lehman. It's a good interview. She's done a really interesting interview with him. What does parenthood ask of a man? That he be more manly? Provide and protect like a modern-day caveman? What if you're already the manliest of men, a celebrated man's man, a man who spent decades brawling and brooding and kicking down the door to the pantheon of cinematic alpha males? There's more four than quest- four questions already. Question <laughs> and finally, what if you're Joel Edgerton? I mean, I don't. I, I no, really, say, I'm, I've fallen asleep. It wasn't a come on fest. in the first sentence. You got to get him in, and then it has how parenthood has changed him. And you know, it, it, I do. My eyes do glaze over a bit when men become parents late, and and everyone goes, "Oh, he's the most unbelievable father. He just loves his children." Well, which father doesn't love his children, really? But look, it's a really interesting interview. But five questions in the first paragraph. I just read it and thought, I must tell Corrie about that when I see her on um, doing the podcast. Corrie, are you part of the new to bed early? Well, I don't know about this new early to bed Melbourne fad. And what is the earliest you would eat dinner at a restaurant? Well, it was in your paper on the weekend. Yeah, I, oh, sorry. But people people are booking for dinner at restaurants at 4pm. Well, that, that's because you can't, if you can't get into... With, but people are saying they quite like it. Gimlet at any other time. In fact, I had this conversation with a couple of my kids and they said, yeah, don't mind a bit of an early night. I said, that's because you have little children and that's kind of par for the course. But I have to say, Caro, that um, we've always been kind of 7.30ish eaters. And when I was in Ballarat for my... Um, much mentioned, much talked about two weeks in June. I ate with the kids. Oh, what a great thing to do. And then you have a little treat at about 8 or 8.30, cup of tea and a butternut snap, and then you go to bed and your stomach feels flat because you've digested all your food and you've and you can sleep really well. Maybe the four glasses of wine after the kids were in bed helped. No, that's a joke. I would not do that on when I'm on watch. We, but, um, um, but we've had this argument many times. I have some friends who ask us for dinner and they say, come at six, and you go, what? Well, that's like dunch for us. And, and you know, Brendan's usually not home from work at that time, And but anyway. And then other people want to make it eight. And, you know, there's some in between who go, look, we're not waiting till eight o'clock. And the eight o'clock people are saying, how old are we, you know? A hundred? No, we're we're eating at eight. And, you See, know, this we- is another reason to in- bring dunch into your life, Caro. Oh, yeah. you can have a four o'clock lunch dunch, and then everybody's out the door by nine. You know what I do love, and I, I reminded myself of this last night with daylight saving. I love getting into bed when it's light outside. <laughs> do you? Oh, I find that a bit weird. I like that. I mind love it. it. I, don't I mind even it loved it when rest. I was a kid, Jane, because I used to love going to bed. You know how some kids. Oh, Harriet Spear up in Ballarat. Some kids just love staying up and hate going to bed. Others, like Willow Spear, go straight to bed going, oh, thank God I've had such a big day and just falls into bed and that's me. Well, I even loved it as a kid and hearing the crickets outside. I, that's nice. It was lovely with daylight saving starting, wasn't it? I, oh, that was just absolutely beautiful. I said to Brendan, we should go outside, go down and go down to the beach, take the dog and, you know, take down our cocktail and whatever and, and our dinner. And Brendan goes, well, we better get going or we'll miss the day. I said, no, we won't. No, We've got exactly. We've got it's that sneaky feeling. Caro, what was the most enjoyable task you completed this week? 
Well, it's something I have never actually done. This is a terrible admission. I did it sort of partly about 20 years ago. Tell me you fixed your car after last week. No, no, the car's still disgusting. Miss Jane will be very impressed by this. I emptied my compost bin. Like it was, you know, I've got two now and this one's been going for five years and it was it's amazing. Like it was full to the brim. Lots of worms? Well, yes, it was full to the brim back in oh, the start of the year and I just left it and started, you know, working on the other bin. And um, when I got back from overseas at the start of August, it was only half full. Like the worms had – Jane's just nodding like, you know, told you so, Dr. Dog. Anyway – it was so enjoyable. We took – Brendan was slightly reluctant because he had a pretty busy week and sort of one day off, but I said, come on, we can do this. There's lots of eggshells. Everyone told me they biodegrade really well, but the mm, eggshells were – I would watch that. Anyway, anyway yeah. we'd put a bit watch of lime eggs in. And, eggs Brendan, and rats. Watch Brendan, that. No rats. Brendan mixed it around very happily and he'd, or he'd done that uh, about a month ago. It was so enjoyable filling the wheelbarrow and de- depositing it, Jane, all over the garden. That is wonderful. Um, our, oh. our friend Rick um, Loder, a few years ago, when he attacked his compost bin, he was attacked by bees. There was a oh. hive of bees. No, wasps, sorry. Oh. Even worse, European wasps were in it. Don't you remember that terrible story? I, I did know that, but I didn't know it was in the compost. It was in the compost. Well, but anyway, Jane, that's it, what my memory recalls. Jane, it doesn't look like the compost you buy from Bunnings. You know, it doesn't look that smart. It looks a little bit pale and sad and it's got bits in it. In fact, there were four little espresso, those little pods. coffee pods. How do you know? Have you, done, have you found that too? Uh, you find all sorts, but next, what we can get her for Christmas, Corrie, is a compost sieve. You sound like you've got the bug, mm-hmm. and next level is sieving it, so it's just perfect. That's great. I think I'll... A sieve. I you don't know if I get Brendan really over sec- the line on I the sieve. I think it sounds really sexy, Jane. It sounds it's like underwear. better than saving food Janie, from Janie, you know what? You've had, you have had that place in the country for just a year, and you have become <laughs> Martha Gardner of the Western Highway. The bad news is that, sadly, I thought, well, isn't it good that Queenie's not that interested? Well, she sort of was, and we'd mixed it with a bit of black grit, and oh, it's no. a, a few accidents overnight. <laughs> So it ended, actually it was a happy task, but it had a sad ending. Oh, Corrie, what was the most enjoyable task you completed this week? The ironing. Oh, <laughs> you can have that on your own. And speaking of Rick Stein, I hadn't watched the second series of the his Cornwall. I watched four programs. That's how big the ironing pile was, Caro. I think every dunch and every dinner, everybody who's come to eat at my place for the last nine months and has been given a fabric napkin. I didn't even know I had so many napkins. Ironed them all. Ironed Max's singlets and onesies, which happened to be there. I don't know why. Ironed my clothes. I ironed everything in that ironing basket. I was about to iron the fitted sheet and I went, no. What a enough. fabulous feeling. It was. I, don't, I been draw the very line at high. fitted sheets. No, I, I, did, I just... As you, do, as, as you do, I just stuffed it in the cupboard because even though our friend Linda's taught me how to fold it, I still don't know how to do it. But it's some, there's something very satisfying about the ironing pile. This was very, very big and it was towering and it fell over last week, nearly killed Panda. But um, that's okay. It got me motivated. So it was the most enjoyable thing I did. Do you want to know a good tip about um, putting fitted sheets on beds and making them even more seem more ironed than you know, they normally would. Well, you pull a good doona, Kara, so tell me how to do it. Put them on when they're damp, just slightly damp. Oh, 
Oh. And then just leave it. Just leave it for the day. You know, go off to work or go and do the supermarket shopping or go and play bridge and or have a round of golf. it's not a cold day. And when you get home, it's all stretched and beautiful and dry. It doesn't go through to the mattress because oh. there's always a mattress protector. That's a good tip. Very that's, good tip. That's a good tip. That's like, um, and I did it the other day, um, hanging particularly silk clothing, but hanging your linen or silk clothing in the shower recess with the hot water. Oh, yes. Uh, oldie but a goodie. Caro, what's this week's amazing fact? It's a terrible fact, and everybody is aware of it, so I, I suppose it's not really – well, it, I think it's amazing. The energy crisis in Europe, as you know, has reached epidemic proportions. Sorry to use that word. Um, but um, I think Germany is the worst. Governments all over Europe now are putting in special caps and plans, but I was talking to Rose the other day, the daughter who lives in Amsterdam. Her energy bill – at the moment, is $30 a day. Oh, wow. And she lives in not a big apartment, a two-bedroom apartment. It's not enormous at all. In fact, it's probably, you know, recent, relatively, it's got a, a living area, a, a small kitchen, two bedrooms and a bathroom and a powder room. $30 a day. So what do you do if you're the Rijksmuseum well, or Buckingham Palace? It is just got, Germany, as I said, is the absolute worst. I know the Norwegian government have stepped in this week. The Dutch government are about to cap it in the next sort of month or so. People, are, they, they, obviously we know why it's happening. It's because of the war in Ukraine. It is an absolute disaster. Well, maybe this will actually, in a bizarre way, speed up um, all of those brilliant ideas and plans that people have had for 10 and 20 years for more efficient energy. Yeah, well, I mean, our energy bills, of course, are terrible as well, and there are rising prices everywhere. I mean, you don't, you know, everything costs seems to cost a lot more since the pandemic ended, and that's partly because it, there's been a pandemic and there's staff issues, as you said. But, um, you know, restaurants and going to the supermarket, and we hear this week that the two major or three major supermarkets are going to drop major household items, drop the prices. But $30 a day. Oh, I know. And for- Co- Coco and I were saying the other day that it, it's, the spontaneity seems to have gone out of life in terms of um, going out to dinner or going to the pub or doing whatever. You just you have to be better organised. You have to be organised. Yes, I think, that, I think that will improve. I hope so. I hope over summer it does. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I hope so too. Corrie, that was this week's podcast. Lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. Lovely to talk to the potties. Thanks, Miss Jane, for all the... Um, fact-checking for us. Lovely to hear about Miles's Island Wines. I'm looking forward to reading The Marriage Portrait. I urge you to go and see see how they run. Thank you to our supporters. We managed it. Do you know what we did this week? We've had an entire one-hour conversation. We haven't mentioned the royal family. Well, you just blew it. <laughs> Thank you, Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. Thank you, Prince Wine Store. Visit princewinestore.com.au and click on the Don't Shoot the Messenger page. For all of Miles's recommendations and special discounts, and join us on the 26th of October from 5 till 7 for a little drop-in at Prince Wine Store. We're really looking forward to seeing you. You can connect with us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to get our show notes delivered to your inbox each week, hit the sign-up button on Facebook or in our show notes, or send us an email and we'll subscribe you. Email, of course, is feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. And, Corrie, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) 
this podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's Most Trusted Energy Providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au.